Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I am Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. I'm flying solo today in terms of hosting Doug McCullough from the Lone Star Policy Institute. Normally, my co-host has had a kitchen-related emergency, uh, and so he is dealing with that. But we still have a great program for you today because we are joined with two guests, so there's still going to be three of us. So we have with us Brink Lindsay, the vice president of the Niskanen. Is it the Niskanen Center or the Niskanen Institute? Is this Niskanen Center? Niskanen Center. Yes, I always, I always make sure that I pronounce Niskanen correctly, which no one ever does. But then I, I forget whether it's Center or Institute. So, and then also joining us is uh, returning guest Samuel Hammond, also with Niskanen, the director of Poverty and Welfare welfare policy there. So welcome both of you gentlemen. Thanks for having us. So we are going to talk today about a new report that was just released by Niskanen. Uh, You are the co-authors, the Faster Growth, Fairer Growth Report. So why don't you to begin, whichever you would like to just give kind of a high-level summary of the report, then we can go into some of the, the meat of it. I'll start off. Uh, this is Brink. We're a uh, small, newish, five years old think tank uh, occupying uh, fairly novel ground on the ideological and partisan. And so uh, in this paper, we're trying to make clear uh, where we're coming from, in particular by, so on the one hand, uh, we've do we have policy departments uh, that do lots of very detailed, granular work on Capitol Hill, pushing specific pieces of legislation in poverty and welfare, in climate policy, and in immigration. Beyond that, we have a number of uh, higher profile kind of big picture thinkers who have laid out uh, Niskanen's uh, distinctive policy vision and distinctive ideological orientation, uh, which uh, sort of sits askew conventional left-right uh, divides. Uh, we explicitly try to draw on the best ideas of both the left and the right in our policy vision. And so between that kind of high-level uh, big-picture theory and on-the-ground granular work, we wanted to flesh out uh, a more wide-ranging but concrete policy agenda uh, that shows uh, where our approach to policy takes us in confronting uh, perhaps the single biggest Uh, public policy challenge facing the United States in the 21st century, which is to revive inclusive prosperity, to make economic dynamism hum again, and to ensure that the benefits of dynamism are uh, broadly shared, both socioeconomically and geographically. Right. And and to give some context, this is sort of a sequel to our 2018 paper, The Center Can Hold, uh, which sort of lays out a a, um, high-level philosophical position that you know, for, for, for things to work in the United States in our system of government, there has to be a robust center where center left and center right can come together and kind of govern uh, cohesively. Um, and so we sort of make that case at the level of politics in that paper. And in this paper, you know, part of the, the um, you know, the first chapter is called a new policy synthesis. And the, we take the synthesis part kind of literally because we're, we're really trying to fuse elements from the left and the right uh, to provide a roadmap for the kind of agenda that could potentially, you know, facilitate the center holding, so to speak. Yeah. So uh, before we get into the report, actually, let me 
follow up on that a little bit because most of the organizations in Washington, political groups, think tanks or whatever, they kind of fall into, I guess, three camps. There are groups on the right that are associated with, I mean, they're, they're nonpartisan, but they put forward policies that tend to appeal more towards the Republican Party uh, and Republican philosophy. And then you have the same thing on the left. And of course, a third group would be uh, the libertarians who don't appeal to anybody. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, and it does seem like Niskanen is trying to do something different. Uh, you mentioned about the need for the center. And as I was looking through the report, this new report, one of the things that struck me was, well, you know, there's a lot of interesting ideas in here, but it's not, so you would not expect this necessarily to be a report that a Republican office holder or a Democratic office holder, it's not billed for them, for either of them exactly. What is y'all's perspective on that? Because while the poem, while your report says the center can can hold. Uh, the, the poem says, of course, it can't. And modern events tend to be more in the camp of that we're slouching towards something. So, I mean, what is the case that this sort of, uh, you know, centrist, neoliberal, however you want to describe it, vision still has a place in today's politics? Yeah. So uh, I think if you look through the specific policy recommendations, there are some that are more likely to appeal to Republicans, some more likely to appeal to Democrats. And that's absolutely fine with us. Something as wide ranging as this paper isn't going to nobody's going to adopt it as a whole. It's going to happen if it happens piece by piece. Uh, And so if the kind of yin and yang of uh, center left uh, and center right uh, policy development over time uh, works out, uh, then lots of our agenda could end up uh, getting adopted, even if if it isn't adopted in whole by one side or the other. Um, The reason we we straddle the ideological divide is because that divide, at least as far as the big question of the size and scope of government is concerned, tends to pit a pro-government anti-market left against a pro-market anti-government right. And our distinctive dissent from uh, from that ideological orientation is to call it a false dichotomy. Uh, we are pro-government and pro-market. Uh, we believe that robust provision of social insurance and public goods uh, is necessary to make a market order perform uh, as well as it can uh, and perform for the benefit of all. Uh, and likewise, we believe that a thriving market order is absolutely essential to pay uh, for the robust provision of social insurance and public goods. So we see a thriving public sector and a thriving private uh, sector as uh, not as antagonists, but as necessary complements. Uh, and that is the that's the basic uh, sort of distinctive novelty uh, in our policy policy vision from which uh, our recommendations flow. Right. And, and and by pro-government, we don't mean that we go to bat for the public sector unions or something like that. What, what we mean is we need a functional, you know, high capacity system of, uh, we need our bureaucracies to basically work well. And and that's a, that, that's a view that, you know, I think if the IRS did a better job or was better funded and had better systems in place or, or our social welfare state was uh, sort of better implemented, a, a variety of these things where we are, where the U.S. system seems to, you know, have declining state capacity or administrative capacity, those things feed back into declining trust in government and, and institutions more broadly. And, you know, there's, there's a sense in which being pro-government on the left is a kind of uh, complacency with those with that with that declining administrative capacity. Whereas in our in this paper we take it 
de- declining capacity really seriously and say, you know, it's not enough to be like California, where where so many of the problems in that state are traced to like sclerosis in the public sector. We want our public sector to be high performance just as much as we want the economy to be high performance. Yeah. So just the subtitle of our paper is policies for a high road, high performance economy. What does that mean? Uh, A high road is a term we take from uh, labor markets. A high road labor strategy is one where a company invests a lot in workers and then hopes for to retain them for the long term, as opposed to a low road labor market strategy where you don't train your workers, uh, you invest very little in them and you expect lots of over uh, over time. So we see uh, a kind of high road policy vision is necessary. We believe that big government investments in the market order are necessary for it to uh, to achieve its potential. And that that can sound a lot like sort of uh, conventional progressive rhetoric, uh, casting all government spending as investment. But we see we, we don't go along with the kind of naive trust in just uh, giving bigger budgets and more discretionary power to government and all will be well. Uh, we see as uh, recovering libertarians um, all kinds of ways that even uh, well-intentioned government policies can go badly askew, go badly awry. Uh, and so uh, we are very mindful of even if there is a need for activist government, uh, that making activist, activist government work properly is very, very hard. In particular, it's easy for government to get captured by insiders and have the rules written to benefit them at the expense of everybody else. Uh, it's also easy uh, for government policies to devolve into what Steve Tellis, our colleague in the scanning, calls kludgeocracy, uh, just a gradual accretion over time of, of stuff that uh, that doesn't fit very well together and a pileup of unintended consequences. And so we uh, have a distinctive policy viewpoint uh, that looks for uh, government to have to accomplish a lot, uh, but is mindful uh, and tries to build into our policy recommendations strategies uh, for combating very strong tendencies towards government dysfunction. Right. And, and to the original question of, you know, whether the, the center really can hold, I think that, you know, that kind of remains to be seen. <laughs> but, um, you know, one of the underlying points is it, we don't really have an option, right? Like it either holds or it doesn't. I think some on the left would, you know, are, are pining for the, the kind of California outcome where we have a one party state, but that's not really tenable at the national level. Um, and so, you know, in the long run, we see something like this as being, you know, putting out a marker for where the center of gravity could be and should be or needs to be if, you know, we're going to uh, overcome political polarization and actually have a functional national government. So you mentioned the. Uh, so it, 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 the beginning of your report, you have a section, what went, what went wrong, uh, which is a very timely question. Um, so part of that, I, I, you know, if you look at what's, what's going wrong, there's obviously, you mentioned declining administrative capacity, sclerosis, uh, on the government end. And certainly as I look, I think a lot of people, and I would include myself in this, they look at the way, uh, the American government functions or fails to function and the bureaucracy functions or fails to function. And the idea of making that bigger or more powerful in some way uh, seems kind of horrific. At the same time, as I look around the world, uh, just in terms of response to the coronavirus pandemic, to give an example, it's clear that it doesn't have to be that way. Um, Some governments are able to 
respond much more nimbly and competently. And uh, it turns out that that really matters. So what, so this is going to be a two-part question. I'll save the second part for a minute. But in terms of the administrative capacity, how do you get out of that kind of vicious circle of the government doesn't function very well, so it can't do much. And so people don't trust and, and so it can't do much. Yeah. So that's a, that is a vicious circle and practically how to get out of it. So we have, so, you know, government dysfunction is a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, that is, um, uh, if nobody, if nobody, or particularly one party, the Republican party is absolutely committed to the idea that government can't do anything correctly, then, then it becomes very easy then to appoint hacks, uh, in positions of responsibility because it doesn't really matter because they're not going to accomplish anything anyway. And then once you appoint hacks, then there's no chance uh, that that uh, government office is going to do its job correctly. And so that will that the poor performance of that government agency will just, you know, further underscore the general perception that uh, government uh, doesn't work. Uh, and so you get this sort of downward spiral of dysfunction and distrust. Uh, to break out of it, you got to get lucky. You got to you have to start with some reform that's relatively uh, that that's enactable and relatively easy to implement that works. Uh, and you start have to start pushing the other way to get a virtuous circle working, where examples of successful government policy making lay the groundwork uh, for the next go round. Uh, but whether that's going to happen uh, is uh, you know remains to be seen. Uh, but the first step is is diagnosing the problems. Uh, and providing sound solutions. And uh, that's the stage that we're concentrating on, right? And I think if you look at U.S. history, there are these sort of turning points or inflection points where, you know, a lot of a lot of problems build up and it seems to, like they're insoluble until there's some kind of tipping point where there's a lot of lot of political change all at once, whether it's, you know, the civil rights era and the Great Society or the New Deal or, or periods before that. Um, and it feels to a lot of people, including us, that we're approaching one of those tipping points where you know a trend that can't go on forever won't and and there's going to be a, a generative burst of new policy opportunities and that's partly because of demographic change and, and generational shifting uh, but also just you look at some of the issues we touch on uh, there are like clear impetuses for reform so we you know one of the chapters is on modernizing our social insurance infrastructure the the catastrophic unemployment crisis we're going through right now has sort of laid bare the problems with our unemployment insurance system. And I think in the, in the year, year, years ahead, will motivate a lot of reform in that area. Similarly, when we talk about the, the section on science and R&D, um, one of the bills we talk about, the Endless Frontier Act, is being driven by, um, you know, not from within the, the science establishment or the research establishment in academia, but actually from from national security folks who, who see science and technology as key to, you know, the kind of geopolitical contest with, with China and are, you know, within the NSF or any of these big science agencies, you're unlikely to get a lot of endogenous push for, you know, big reform. But when you have these sort of outside exogenous factors, that can be an impetus for, for uh, reform, especially when uh, in that case where, um, you know, it can be framed as something that's pretty existential. Okay, so let's let's talk about some of the specific proposals that you have in there. You have a you kind of break it down into three sections: one about protecting working families, one about liberating the captured economy, and one about uh, innovation and technological dynamism. And it interested me that your the section on working families begins by talking about monetary policy, which is not something that you, you necessarily, it's not the thing that, that I would first jump to a lot of people's minds when they talk about, well, how are you going to help working families? So what is it that you would propose there and how does that link up with the broader issue? Well, I think just to kick off, um, you know, a broader theme of that first opening section is the importance of full employment. Um, and, you know, we cite a statistic that 70% of the time the U.S. has been 
below full employment. In other words, there's been um, labor market slack where people could have jobs but don't have jobs because we're not running monetary policy hot enough. Um, and I think on the left and the right, there's been a growing appreciation that tight labor markets have you know, a host of benefits. Um, they you know, bring in disadvantaged workers. Uh, they have a racial equity component because often discrimination means you don't hire that person with a criminal record or from a minority group until really they're the, your last option. Um, and we were seeing those gains just before the coronavirus uh, pandemic um, because we had one of the longest expansions on record. And it was really phenomenal. And we were also you know, realizing that the natural rate of unemployment, the, the rate that we could push it down to without generating inflation was a lot lower than anyone realized. Uh, and so we kick off by talking about uh, having superior monetary policy, specifically a nominal GDP level target, which is sort of a mouthful. But um, really the, the point is we need a, a regime that treats price stability and unemployment with relative symmetry and doesn't and isn't satisfied with you know five or six percent unemployment that you know when we get the unemployment rate down below four percent um, markets work better markets work more like they should work but also you have genuine uh, improvements in economic mobility and opportunity yeah I think I think in monetary policy uh, it's become clear uh, over the past decade or so since the Great Recession uh, that that we've been stuck on fighting the last war uh, so I I was a teenager during the 1970s. That's when I came to political awareness during the great inflation. We had then the, the, the big macroeconomic problem was this tendency towards overheating, this tendency towards excessive nominal spending and therefore ex, uh, excessive inflation and uh, the price level. Um, since then, uh, we, uh, we've gone in the other direction and patted ourselves on the back about uh, our great record of disinflation, uh, but then failed to notice uh, this kind of ongoing susceptibility towards slack, uh, slack that is bad for workers, it's bad for, uh, for growth, uh, and may indeed uh, be bad for productivity growth uh, by uh, removing that uh, labor shortage, uh, which, is, uh, which sharpens incentives uh, for labor-saving innovations. Uh, so uh, we see uh, these days uh, a move towards um, a monetary policy that more reliably uh, avoids slack while also avoiding overheating uh, as as a win-win. Uh, that is, that you get uh, a short-term uh, stimulus uh, relative to the slack you might experience otherwise, uh, and then uh, more favorable conditions for long-term productivity growth as well. Yeah, so the nominal price level target idea, uh, if I can attempt to explain it in layman's terms, um, I, I mean, I, I guess it's, it's basically that the Fed is going to ensure that uh, the economy will be, uh, let's say, 5%. It's got, the economy is going to be 5% bigger next year than it is this year. Yeah, that's, that's the target. G- yeah G- GDP in nominal terms will go up 4 or 5% a year. You pick the target. Right. That and will, we, yeah, that will we decompose that into... Will be, into that will decompose into some portion of real growth and some portion of inflation, but the target is the nominal spending amount. Right. So we would we would uh, hope that that would be mostly or all real growth, but if it turns out there's not as much real growth, then they'll make the rest of it up. Uh, that it'll be more inflation. But either way, that you it's going to be easily predictable and uh, on a on a set path that, that it's going to grow at a, a certain amount. Um, I get so I guess. Um, my question about that is we seem to be in a weird period where 
um, at least if you talk to a lot of people, it's really hard to produce inflation. Um, you know, we're, we're running, uh, gosh, I don't know, three, four trillion dollar <laughs> deficits this year. Uh, the Fed's, uh, you know, pulled out all the stops to try and avoid another financial crisis. Uh, they've taken interest rates down uh, really low. They've done all sorts of unconventional stuff. Um, and yet, of course, inflation has, despite all this, proven to be kind of uh, non-existent or very low. So is it, I mean, are we in kind of a, a weird world where it, uh, I guess the, the metaphor that monetary people use is, you know, pushing on a string where you can't actually get inflation up. Um, and uh, so the Fed just doesn't have the ability to produce the sort of stability that you would want from the in-GDP targeting regime. Yeah, so both both Sam and I are uh, influenced by the so-called market monetarists, uh, people like Scott Sumner and David Beckworth, uh, who argue that when you're looking at the monetary policy stance, looking at the, the conventional look at interest rates to see if money is easier, tight, uh, is wrongheaded, uh, that low interest rates uh, are frequently uh, the effect of uh, of tight monetary policy and high uh, uh, interest rates are actually the effect of loose monetary policy. And that's what we have seen historically. Um, so to just look at low interest rates and assume that money is easy is wrong. Um, you can say that the, the Fed has been trying and failing to inflate, uh, or you can say the Fed is obviously not committed to inflating uh, because year after year after year, they set an informal or explicit 2% inflation target and they fail to meet it. They undershoot it. Uh, they undershoot it year after year after year. They don't try to make up lost gains. Uh, so the gap between uh, the, uh, the level path and the actual path uh, uh, widens. Um, so um, we believe that, uh, that a, a central bank committed to inflation can inflate. Uh, and uh, so that means that a, a, a central bank committed to a, a path of nominal spending can achieve that path. Um, so, uh, this is really, this, this idea is really an outgrowth of Milton Friedman style monetarism. Uh, there, the idea was to achieve macroeconomic stability by targeting monetary growth. Uh, the idea being, uh, so if, if, so money times velocity equals, uh, uh, you know, uh, national income, uh, the assumption of classic monetarism was that velocity, uh, was constant, uh, and therefore you could just target monetary growth to, to get macroeconomic stability. It has turned out that velocity is not, uh, and so you, you need to target uh, the product, M times V. You need to target spending. Uh, and so that's where the market monetarists are coming from, and we're following uh, their analytical lead here. Right. And, and one thing the, the monetarists, market monetarists, emphasize is the role of, of expectations. Um, and expectations are really sensitive to your overall regime, your monetary regime. And so you know, if the Fed comes out one day and just says we're going to cut rates a little bit, that that doesn't really tell you anything about what the market is expecting over the long term. If the market expects the rates to go right back up, it won't have a big effect. Uh, just like, you know, QE didn't have that big of an effect because the markets fully expected that that money would be uh, pulled back out. Um, so, you know, one of the key insights of level targeting is pegging expectations over the long run. Right. So, um to give you sort of a, a simple example, really the recovery after the 2008 crisis didn't fully accelerate until um, uh, 
the Fed adopted what was known as the Charles Evans rule, the Evans rule named after Charles Evans, the president of the Chicago Fed, which basically said that the rule was we're going to keep rates low for as long as unemployment is above six and a half percent. And that set a expectation for the entire market that they're going to continue easing until we reach some some you know threshold. Um, and that had a much bigger impact on inflation expectations than just saying we're going to lower rates. Um, and similarly, if we had a regime that said, you know, we're going to ease for, for as long as we're below the level path of nominal spending, then any time the market falls short of that, any time you, you only grow 4% when you should have, grow, should have grown 5%, then there's a built-in expectation that next year money will be easier and maybe you'll grow at 6% to make up for the lost, uh, the lost spending. Um, and so the level targeting, the whole point of it is to solve that expectation problem um, and to anchor uh, price growth over the long run. Okay, so I think that's probably enough discussion of monetary policy to inflict on our listener. <laughs> eh? um, but that's it. So th- there's a lot of ideas in here. I don't know that we'll be able to cover them all, but you did mention also in terms of helping working families uh, modernizing our social insurance system. So what what is the idea there? Yeah, I mean, we, re- we began this paper you know, outlining it before the coronavirus crisis hit, but it's taken on a different sort of emphasis um, with the with the crisis and everything we've seen with um, overrun unemployment insurance offices, uh, the struggles that Congress had uh, and the SBA had implementing the Paycheck Protection Program, um, and now the the ongoing debate about whether we're going to do another round of stimulus payments. And it's, it's it, you know it's it's kind of in, in normal times it's it's kind of boring, um, <laughs> but the issue of whether we have an effective social insurance system and you know one that actually can get money in the hands of people when they need it um, is really underrated. And you know, circa 2017, um, America's uh, unemployment insurance systems uh, reached a, uh, I think, a 30-year low in in administrative investments. And a lot of these systems are built on technology from the 1960s. Uh, when this crisis hit, uh, you know, there was a manhunt for people who could program COBOL, which is which is a, you know, the programming equivalent of Latin. Very, very few people who are expert in it. Um, and, you know, this is just a problem. Like we live in the 21st century. You expect your Uber to arrive in three minutes. And if it comes, comes in four minutes, you're kind of mad. Um, but yet our, our governments are sort of working on very antiquated technology. Uh, so uh, the first step is just to have a strategy for modernizing um, sort of across the board. And we, we talk about some of the issues inhibiting that. And the second step is once you've modernized to realize that as a kind of public infrastructure, social insurance systems, you know, they're like roads and bridges. And when you rebuild the bridge to have better structural integrity, you can also add a lane or you can, um, you, you know, you can you can add to the infrastructure and, 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 and upgrade it. Um, and so it's a combination of both modernizing and upgrading uh, in the case of, for example, universal paid sick leave, which in the current context is not just a nice thing to have uh, for, you know, for workers, but also kind of a public health intervention um, that uh, puts us at risk to the extent that sick people continue to go to work because they have no option. And just, just to put part one in the larger context and explain why we have three parts and why they fit together. Part one is mostly about upgrading uh, the performance of the public sector. Parts two and three are mostly about upgrading the performance of the private sector. Uh, Part two uh, is is the sort of uh, 
uh, root canal work that has to begin first or rooting out dysfunction, rooting out massive malinvestment uh, that is occurring in the economy because of regulatory capture and rent seeking run amok. Uh, part three is about actually making the uh, private sector perform better uh, by improving incentives and structures for innovation and dynamism. Uh, so when you put all those three together, uh, that's that's our vision for uh, the co- the interacting combination of a uh, of an upgraded, modernized public sector uh, working with an, uh, a, a structurally reformed uh, and upgraded private sector. Okay, well, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the uh, part two or uh, it's chapter chapter three, liberating the captured economy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, there are a couple of interesting ideas here. One is um, having to do with the the outsized role of the financial sector in the economy. So first, why do we think that uh, there is a problem with the financial sector being too big? And if so, how do we fix it? Yeah, so we just to sort of identify that this is an important problem that we're talking about. We start off this part on the captured economy by identifying three sectors where we think uh, uh, things have gone badly wrong. Finance, uh, basically the financial sector doubled as a a percentage of GDP uh, between uh, the 80s and the Great Recession. Uh, And uh, and what did we get to show for it? We got a, uh, you know, a world threatening cataclysm. Meanwhile, we've got uh, a healthcare sector where, as a percentage of GDP, it's nearly double what other rich countries have. What do we have to show for that uh, uh, life expectancy that's uh, lower than most other uh, equivalent places and actually falling these days? Uh, finally, we have uh, the, uh, in the housing sector. Uh, we have, especially in big cities, um, sort of crisis level uh, affordability problems. Um, and then a kind of macroeconomic breakdown and regional convergence because people are unable to move to where the GDP is being made, unable to move to the places of real opportunity and dynamism uh, because those places have built moats around themselves in terms of land use restrictions on new housing uh, that makes housing unaffordable for people who want to move there. So there's three big areas uh, in American economic life now where the evidence of the disfiguring effects of regulatory capture and insider dominance of policymaking are are uh, mucking up economic performance in big and visible ways. On the on the financial sector front, you know, the uh, all through the '80s and '90s, we heard a lot about financial innovation, and uh, the finance sector was kind of a you know a, a poster child for uh, for the American way and the superiority of American capitalism, and we were coming up with all these uh, great new uh, risk management. Uh, technologies, uh, and yet I, I believe that um, the Great Recession revealed that uh, all of that was was uh, was a lot of hype, um, and that in fact uh, what we ha- had was a lot of regulatory arbitrage uh, and a lot of uh, privatizing gains and socializing losses. Uh, which uh, and the gains are magnified by allowing very, very high leverage, very high dependence on short term debt, uh, uh, which uh, works great for people in the financial sector until there's an inevitable downturn. And then uh, and then you have a bloodbath, which we had. So uh, over back in the 80s and 90s, there was a big literature about how uh, uh, there's a 
correlation between financial sector growth and overall economic growth. Uh, but that literature was based overwhelmingly on the experience of less developed countries, where in fact you can have two small financial sectors. Um, uh, but since the Great Recession, there's been a growing literature on on the on the situation in advanced countries, and it, it looks like the relationship between finance and growth is a, an inverted U shape. So up to a point, uh, increasing uh, the depth of financial markets um, uh, is functional and pro growth and helping uh, people with money to connect with people with good ideas. Past a certain point, uh, it looks like. Um, Financial uh, financialization is bad for productivity and growth uh, by diverting resources into s- sterile pursuits, by uh, ramping up macroeconomic volatility. Um, and so we think we're on the wrong side of that hump. Uh, and the way to get back to the to, to right size the financial sector uh, is to uh, is to impose uh, much stricter capital requirements, that is to require uh, financial institutions to rely more on equity financing and less heavily on short-term debt than they currently do. Right. So, the, yeah, the, the capital requirement would be uh, they are limited uh, in how many more times they can borrow the money that they have as reserves. So I, I guess I, I don't know I don't know what the capital requirements are right now, but is it like thirty three to one? <laughs> yeah. So right. I mean, you know, uh, debt to assets ratios in excess of ninety percent uh, are the absolute norm in finance, and in excess of ninety five or ninety eight percent in parts of the financial sector. Uh, we think uh, that that uh, seventy to eighty uh, percent is uh, is. Uh, much better. That is, uh, equity financing twenty to thirty percent of assets uh, produces uh, a financial sector that's much, much less vulnerable um, to uh, to cataclysm. So, the, when you're heavily leveraged uh, and things go well, then that greatly magnifies uh, your return uh, based on the capital that you put at risk. Uh, but by the same token, if you're heavily leveraged, even mild uh, uh, downturns in asset values mean your capital stake is completely wiped out. Uh, and that's that's happened again and again and again uh, at the macroeconomic level in the United States. Frequently, the Fed is rushed in to smooth things out. Uh, but in 2007 and 8, uh, uh, there was no <laughs> there was no uh, there was no escaping the reckoning. So uh, but that's a very bad way to run a railroad. Uh, and that. Uh, the the kind of uh, bloat of lots and lots of secondary and tertiary trading of assets rather than than actual generation of new financial assets uh, uh, does not seem to us to uh, to have any benefit that's 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 uh, uh, in line with the the costs of of the risk of a financial meltdown that uh, the, the current system has unavoidably. There's also just a different sectors of the economy, like in practice, um, if not in sort of ideal theory, uh, seem to be more prone to rent seeking and sort of crony capitalism than others, right? It's real estate classically is a classic example, but also finance. Uh, And to the extent that, um, you know, the bigger picture is the broader growth slowdown since the 1970s, a lot of these sectors, whether it's intellectual property abuse, uh, uh, financialization, or or you know, NIMBYism in, in, in housing, or um, uh, the restrictions on competition in healthcare, 
these things all sort of simultaneously get much worse in the post 70s era, uh, in part, it seems, because rather than it, it becomes a lot easier to um, try to chase rents and to build a moat around your uh, uh, build a moat against competition than it is to produce actual new uh, productive goods and services. Um, and financialization is a sort of the classic example of this because there are, there is lots of genuine financial innovation, right? So, you know, Stripe makes you know, and Square make it super easy to pay people across the world or to start a new business. Um, but uh, a lot of what gets called financial innovation is really turning, you know, general electric into a mutual fund instead of something that builds actual tangible products. Mm -hmm. And uh, everybody's going to start their own uh, uh, version of Bitcoin. Right. So, uh, so in, in that sense, we see the, the problems of regulatory capture and the problems of flagging uh, uh, dynamism as the, the causal arrows run both ways. Uh, so the kind of uh, dimming of prospects for large scale uh, innovation and dynamism makes profit seeking turn towards rewriting the rules uh, because there's more opportunities in rewriting the rules than there are in inventing better mousetraps. Likewise, of course, uh, once you have a, an economy plagued by rent-seeking dysfunction, uh, the environment for innovation gets a lot, lot worse. So the, the, two, the two problems feed on each other. Uh, okay, so healthcare. Um, this is obviously a big issue. I know the president is looking for a really good healthcare reform proposal. Uh, you have a section in there about supply side reforms for healthcare. So why don't you explain a little bit what you mean by that and how, how that would work? Yeah. So we, we address the healthcare financing issue as well in, in part two, uh, with, uh, with a recommendation of universal catastrophic coverage as a alternative to Medicare for all and as a much more elegant, uh, solution than, than what we've got under the affordable care act. Um, that is basically uh, you have single payer for uh, health expenses above X percent of income of, you know, uh, household income. Uh, but below that, you let insurance uh, do its private insurance do its work. But uh, but our bigger uh, point on health care is that the overwhelming focus of debate has been on that. Uh, I've been on financing who pays for health care rather than focusing on how why is health care so expensive? And part of that is because it's a lot politically, it's just a lot uh, easier politically to attack insurance companies than it is to attack doctors and hospitals and drug makers. Uh, they uh, are politically much more powerful. But the, the problem is that's that's where the a whole bunch of the problem is. All the issues about healthcare financing are so vexing uh, because, uh, um, because healthcare in the United States is so dreadfully expensive. If you want to move towards more reliance on kind of individual self-insurance and large sa health savings accounts and the like, uh, those proposals founder on sticker shock because people think that no matter what they had in their uh, savings account, it wouldn't be enough because prices are so high. Likewise, single-payer proposers uh, proposals frequently die of sticker shock because it's just so expensive. Um, so unless we can uh, address the question of healthcare prices, uh, we're really not going to get to the root of the problem. And, and that's that is the root of the problem. So we spend so much more on healthcare than other countries uh, because our prices are much higher than other countries. And the reason for that is uh, because the health profession here captured uh, policymaking before the state became a dominant player in healthcare uh, finance. 
Uh, and so once the state got involved, it got involved in a captured system uh, that was built for the benefit of insiders, uh, modeled on a fee-for-service model that maximizes income for practitioners um, and, uh, and is structured with all kinds of, of inhibitions on supply. Uh, the, uh, the healthcare profession uh, controls uh, the number of medical uh, school slots. It controls uh, accreditation of medical schools. It controls um, the number of residency slots. Uh, it controls uh, the uh, the ease of, of passing a medical licensing exam. And then finally, it controls the scope of practice that a, a medical exam entitles you to. Uh, so in all of those ways, uh, the uh, then uh, hospitals have gradually uh, uh, concentrated uh, uh, into these big sort of regional monopolies and developed a whole lot of pricing power. Uh, drug makers have uh, manipulated the patent system uh, to get uh, eke out a lot more monopoly protection than the uh, law originally envisioned. So in all these different dimensions, healthcare providers are gaming the system to write the rules to benefit them at the expense of everybody else, limiting competition and driving up prices. Uh, so uh, on all of these fronts, on patent reform, uh, on uh, a, a new look at uh, competition in the healthcare sector and, and the role of, of antitrust and, and uh, merger approval uh, on, on, on that issue, uh, on opening up uh, competition in healthcare by uh, by expanding the scope for you know, nurse practitioners to practice independently of MDs. There's just a, a whole bunch of different measures that each can uh, contribute uh, incrementally to expanding the scope of competition uh, and therefore putting some downward pressure on healthcare prices. Yeah, to, give, to give some concrete examples, um, yeah, the, 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 the case of certificate need laws is fairly well known. These are state level laws that require uh, Basically, if you want to start a new hospital, you've got to get all the other hospitals in the, in the region to sign a certificate of needs saying that we need a new hospital in the area. Um, so you're basically asking your competitors to, to, to give you permission to enter the market. Um, and a lot of this stems from uh, hospitals being categorized as nonprofits uh, when, you know, by any sort of objective look at them, they function and, and work just like a for-profit uh, but by being a nonprofit, they're kind of exempted from a lot of standard antitrust regulation. And it's a thing that, you know, you're never going to see um, Democrats really tackle head on, in part because uh, you know, the, the concentration of, uh, of Democrats, Democratic votes in sort of big cities where, you know, hospital systems are super popular. Like, you know, even someone like Elizabeth Warren, who's otherwise a trust buster, um, doesn't want to go up against Massachusetts General Hospital. Right. Um, uh and, and, and then on, on the but then but that's sort of like a well-known example. But there are also, um, I think, you know, pretty scandalous restrictions on the supply of doctors that, uh, are, that people, for some reason, aren't you know generally aware of. So you know, uh, we've written about this. My colleague Robert Orr has written a lot about this. Uh, the uh, between 1981 and 2005, there was a literal moratorium on new MD granting medical schools. Um, and, and and slots within existing schools, no growth in those. Yes. Yeah, so that during that period, the uh, American the American the supply of doctors in the U.S. plateaued, um, and it was all driven by this report from from 1981, the, the HHS commission that argued we were have, we were uh, facing a looming 
physician surplus and we had to do something to constrain the supply or else or else doctors would, wouldn't be paid enough or something like that. Um, and it's just, I think that's just scandalous, but it's not really well known. Um, and it's also something that is like well within our national you know, set of policy levers. Uh, the, the rules that um, that initial finding in 1981, you know, led to restrictions on residencies, led to uh, the removal of scholarship funds for uh, prospective doctors um, and and a lot of a lot of what you would I guess call like voluntary restraint, and that can be reversed. Like if you had a totally different attitude, you could push uh, medical schools to begin opening slots and to expand the supply of doctors. The other phenomenon that's very unique to the U.S. is the degree to which doctors um, are are specialized. U.S. doctors specialize far far higher rates than doctors in, in other countries, and they do that for the very obvious reason that specialists make a lot more money. You know, radiologists make a ton of money doing the exact same thing every day. Um, and that has led to a, a more generic shortage of primary care physicians uh, with a lot of states using nurses to fill the gap. Um, and so that might not be the worst thing in the world if there were broader scope of practice reforms to allow nurses in, in, in more places to act as if they are primary care, you know, frontline healthcare workers. Uh, but there are, for, but most states retain a lot of restrictions on what nurses are able to do. Um, and in some cases require that they have supervision from a doctor, making it sort of um, a moot strategy <laughs> if they need to have a doctor alongside them anyway. Um, so, so, you know, uh, the, 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 the two punch that we recommend is reforms to both increase the number of doctors, but also reforms to make it a lot easier for nurses to pr- provide the primary care that doctors don't seem willing to. Okay. So let's finally, jump to innovation. And uh, again, you have a number of things here. Uh, I want to start with the last item on your list, just because I have a particular interest in it. It's an overhaul environmental review. So what is what are the problems with the way environmental review happens now? And how would you see fixing that in a way that doesn't harm uh, environmental outcomes? So, you know, economists talk about general purpose technologies like information technology that's just pervasive. And so if you have a breakthrough in that, it can just show up in productivity growth in sectors throughout the economy because the the technology is ubiquitous. There seem to be also kind of general purpose dysfunctions, uh, things that go wrong and go wrong and and afflict uh, uh, sectors throughout the economy. And right now, it's just way too expensive to build anything in physical space. uh, in the United States, uh, if you look at uh, cost per road mile, cost per track mile, um, uh, those costs are multiple uh, of what they are in Europe. It's not like Europe is the Wild West without environmental protections uh, or worker protections. Uh, it's that there's some unique dysfunction here uh, in the construction industry. Uh, as far as we can tell, we have negative productivity growth in construction, which is a uh, baffling and completely different from what we ought to expect in any kind of well-functioning progressive economy. So um, figuring out uh, why uh, infrastructure uh, uh, has become so expensive, figuring out why it's so hard to build anything in America uh, has has attracted increasing attention uh, in recent years. And it's it's really hard to to put your finger on kind of one thing because it looks like so many things have gone wrong. There's just every element of, uh, uh, if you 
or figure out why the, a particular the New York extension of the subway line was so exorbitantly expensive. Just at every step, uh, there was waste uh, and dysfunction. Uh, but uh, an emerging uh, consensus, I think, is starting to take shape that that environmental review is a is a is a big part of the problem. I'm forgetting the names of the co-authors, but there's a Brookings paper of late uh, that we cite in our paper uh, that identif- identifies uh, the growth in kind of uh, public participation and in and uh, particularly through uh, environmental review uh, in in building decision making uh, as the which occurred during the 60s and 70s as the inflection point at which uh, U.S. infrastructure costs started to veer off and and go into their current uh, uh, inflated state. Uh, And so uh, we think that that while there may be uh, many other problems going on, a clear good place to start in getting control over uh, infrastructure costs and building costs uh, is to revisit environmental review, which uh, which does the National Environmental Policy Act (NEPA) uh, doesn't actually uh, have in it any substantive economic uh, uh, standards or protections? Uh, if if you uh, even if the environmental impact state mandated by NEPA finds all kinds of environmental problems, so long as the in- impact statement is deemed comprehensive, uh, the uh, the project can go forward. So. Uh, all NEPA does is basically is a paperwork requirement and a review requirement. Uh, it is spiraled out of control from what the expectation of of of, uh, of how it would work back in its early days. Um, and uh, so we think some sort. And there have been you know efforts uh, by the Obama administration and now by the Trump administration uh, to get a handle on this through uh, through executive order. Uh, but uh, our guess is that it will take. Uh, legislative change uh, to really make a meaningful impact in this area. Yeah, I think that Brookings paper may be by Leah Brooks and Zachary Liskow. Does that sound correct? That's it. That's it. Yeah, yeah. good, good, good paper. Um, in case anyone wants to go uh, look it up. Okay, so uh, an- another aspect uh, that you talk about here that I am very interested in has to do with science and R and um, D. That's obviously something that the U.S. government, the federal government, does do some now, uh, but I'm sure there are ways to do more of it and make the money go farther than it does now. So what what is your perspective on uh, research and development uh, funding and what process? Uh, we start by noting that over the last 30, 40 years, um, as a percent of GDP, the U.S. federal spending on research and development has steadily declined. Um, and that has manifested in, you know, the, in the big, big agencies like the National Institute of Health or National Science Foundation declining rates of grant approval. So, you know, back in the 70s, you would expect every other grant to get funded. Today, uh, and for many, pro- many programs, many divisions, the, the ex- acceptance rate is is 10 to 20%. So what that means is, you know, one in 11 people get their grant funded. The other, the other 10 um, have to go back to the drawing board, rewriting the grants, resubmitting the grants. And, and when the agencies themselves have, have looked into this and done surveys, the NSF finds that uh, the typical program 
a principal investigator on a, on a research project spends 40% of their time just on grant preparation and other administrative duties. So it's not just that we've lost, it's not just that we've had declining spending, but the actual efficacy of that spending has also declined dramatically. So um, we don't believe in just throwing more money at the problem, although that would help um, uh, in general. But uh, if, if there aren't these deeper structural reforms to how we fund science um, to get more bang for the buck, then we're not really, we're just paper, papering over the deeper issues. Um, and especially when it comes to sort of breakthrough research and the commercialization of new technologies, it's not just about getting that, um, you know, the, the idea uh, patented or, um, or, you know, it's about taking that idea and translating it into real productive potential. Um, and through that entire process, it, there are myriad barriers and obstructions and also just not, not quite the emphasis on commercialization that the U.S. should, should have. So let me just to sum up, I'm, go- I'm going to return to something we were talking about more towards the beginning, which is, of course, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of meat in this report. Uh, probably each of the individual items you could do a whole podcast on. Uh, but one thing that isn't really covered that much is uh, political reform, right? And I know I can hear people uh, talking about, you know, if, if you lay down all these ideas that, uh, you know, maybe, the, maybe they're good ideas, maybe they're bad ideas, but uh, they presume a level of energy and action in the terms, you know, passing laws or reforming, restructuring elements of the economy or government that seems to be beyond what, you know, harkens back to a bygone era, right? It's no longer uh, how we do things. And so is there a way for this stuff to happen, given the current political constraints, both the this, you know, institutional constraints of the way things are set up uh, very often at the federal level to make it hard to get anything big done. And then also, you know, uh, you talk a lot about rent seeking. And of course, the people who are getting the rents, uh, they they like to keep those rents. So that's a big that's a big blocker there. So what are your just to, to let's end on that note is what what your thoughts on on the, the viability of this project uh, in that respect? Yeah, so that's, you know, that's an open question, uh, but uh, it's our job to, uh, to, uh, to do our best to push in the correct direction uh, and point the path that we think goes in that right direction. Um, and as I said earlier, you can, uh, you can uh, it is possible to get out of a, a vicious circle into a virtuous circle uh, through uh, just the good luck of of actually getting getting some efficacious reform uh, through the current system, uh, which it happens. We still produce legislation on Capitol Hill, even in our uh, highly polarized state. Uh, but if you can rack up a couple of successes uh, that that show that that counter this corrosive cynicism that nothing works and nothing helps, uh, then you can get on the right path. As far as the incentives to do so, I think you know not only have we. Uh, had uh, the whole 21st century sort of malaise of of dimming economic prospects for uh, a larger and larger chunk of the population and a larger and larger chunk of the land mass of the country. Um, so, and and that I think has translated uh, into the kind of uh, political upheavals uh, we've been living through, uh, which I interpret as a legitimacy crisis. Um, that if the rules of the game are not working well for most people, uh, then they are going to lose faith in 
established institutions and governing elites, and they're going to start an increasingly desperate search for um, heterodox uh, approaches to the problem. And so I see the the rise of Donald Trump uh, and the fact that Bernie Sanders nearly got the nomination in two election cycles as indicators of of a loss of faith in the rules of the game as they're currently written. Uh, and so the uh, everyone who uh, who has some stake uh, in in uh, you know who's doing relatively wor- well in the world today uh, should be uh, terrified at the prospect of deepening dysfunction and deepening polarization uh, and and uh, a worsening of the kind of political problems we're experiencing now and if uh, and and that pr- should provide the kind of you know uh, the kind of concentration that that uh, seeing the gallows out there hanging. Uh, uh, for you, uh, uh, provides in the proverb. Uh, so there, there, the stakes are high. Uh, the incentives for going in the right direction are, uh, are very high. There is at least the possibility of stumbling out of a bad equilibrium path onto a good equilibrium path. And so we're, uh, we're trying to point the way. And, and, and moreover, we're not just sort of using the law of attraction and writing this paper and and putting it into our, our journal book and, and praying on it. We actually work sort of, um, on a day-by-day basis on all these issues on Capitol Hill and, and, and really playing a role that um, partisans don't play, right? Because whether if you're a partisan Democrat or a partisan Republican, you want your team to win, but that leaves a kind of vacuum in the, in the, the center, not the center ideologically, but the center in the sense of people trying to actively sort of manage those coalitions and create uh, opportunities for genuine bipartisan uh, legislation, and whether whether it's um, the work we've done on carbon taxation or clean tech um, in the environmental space, or um, uh, the multiple immigration bills that we've uh, been champions of, or my own work on sort of trying to build support for social insurance and child child benefits in particular on the right to try to uh, create an olive branch for people who like child benefits on the left. Like we, we are all, we are actively trying to be the the deliberative democracy we want to see in the world, and uh, and and so we're sort of endogenous to that process, and, and we've 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 picked a lot of the, the topics we pick, including where I was just talking about the endless, endless frontier act. You know, have true bipartisan support because something like reforming how we do science doesn't have necessarily a partisan coding. And so, you know, elsewhere we've written a lot about the kind of institutional reforms that we'd like to see at the at Congress, sort of re-empowering our legislative capacity per se. Uh, breaking the, the monopoly uh, that leadership holds over what can get a floor vote and so on. And so we have ideas to make this, you know, to to bring more of these things to fruition and, and, and to expand the opportunity for bipartisan uh, bipartisanship. But um, but they're, they're all things we're actively engaged on rather than just sort of throwing coins down and wishing well. Okay. Our guests today have been Brink, Lindsay, and Samuel Hammond, both of Scanning Center. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Josiah.